the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be talking to Barry Halloran of the Irish Times about the challenges being faced by Ireland's largest airports and our main airlines, Aer Lingus and Ryanair. Later in the show, you'll hear from businesswoman Anne Chapman, who had just completed the fit-out of a new jewellery store in Dublin when the pandemic hit and forced her to remain shut. You'll hear how she bounced back from this disappointment and how the business is proving remarkably resilient in the new normal of COVID-19. Now, Irish aviation has been battered since the lockdown was introduced in March, and the impact of the pandemic on the industry was the subject of a debate this week at a special Oireachtas committee hearing on COVID-19. DA and Shannon Airport gave us the story from their viewpoint, while Aer Lingus and Ryanair gave us an overview in how this is impacting on airlines. Barry Halloran covered the proceedings and joins me on the line now. Barry, you're very welcome. Just tell us, first of all, how bad is it at the minute for Irish airports? It's very, very bleak, Kieran. Indeed, Cork and Dublin airports have lost around 100 million to date. They're the two biggest state-owned airports. Um, traffic is running at around uh, 15% or less um, a day than it would have been this time last year. I think the figures are this time last year would have been kind of 110 to 120,000 passengers a day. That figure is more like 15 to 20 at the moment, I understand. Um, Ray Gray, the DAA, which he's chief financial officer of the DAA, which owns both airports. He outlined the scenario yesterday and he said that some of the, the aircraft taking off uh, from Dublin Airport at the moment are barely full. Very, very few of them are actually at capacity. Um, and there are, there are around 200 flights a day compared to 600 uh, previously. Okay, so not a pretty picture by any means. Um, now, tell us about the airlines. Aer Lingus and Ryanair were both in front of the committee as well. And Ryanair had its Q1 results this week as well, didn't it? So just tell us how bad the position is from their viewpoint. Well, Ryanair lost €185 million Euro in the, its, its first quarter, which ended uh, on the 30th of June. That was the first quarter of its financial year and um, coincided with the absolute depths of the lockdown. It is saying that it hopes to mitigate losses over the, the, the next kind of three months and six months as it resumes flying around Europe. Um, it is operating around 40% of its uh, schedules at the moment. However, the airline makes a point that um, uh, the Republic is an outlier because of its current travel restrictions. Um, that the rest of Europe is is beginning to is beginning to fly, resuming travel basically, but certainly not on the scale as any a scale similar to before. But Ireland remains very much outside that picture. We don't know what the position is with Aer Lingus right now, but Aer Lingus's parent uh, international airlines group is due to report on Friday, and that should shed some light on Aer Lingus's financial position or financial performance. But we do know that Aer Lingus has been operating at um, around 10% of capacity up to very, very recently. It has also started flying to select destinations in Europe and the US. And um, But again, it is seeing far less activity than it would have done this time last year. Yeah, and what's the position in terms of staffing at these airlines? Are they tapping the wage subsidy scheme? Have they laid off staff? Have there been pay cuts? Both are tapping the wage subsidy scheme. Ryanair has agreed 
basic 20% pay cuts with cabin crew and staff that it says, at, at least in an Irish context, will avoid the need for redundancies here. There, the, it struck the, the, this agreement quite recently with Forza. Fundamentally, people will be on short, will, will be on short time. There'll be work practice changes. Um, the airline is looking for 3,000 or said it would have to lay off up to 3,000 people across Europe. They're saying that the Irish deal will uh, avoid the necessity for that, at least as things stand. Aer Lingus has signalled that it is going to have to lay off around 500 of its 4,500 uh, workers. Now, that's that's a slightly more complex situation, Kiran, in that it formally told the government that as it is obliged to do. It then negotiated a deal with SIP2, which would have avoided maybe the worst of that. SIP2 members rejected that. There was some indication of SIP2 going back in and maybe seeing if the, and, uh, yet another alternative deal could be struck. But as things stand, the airline appears to be um, beginning the process of formal negotiations on redundancies with its unions. At least that was the position as outlined by its chief executive, Sean Doyle, yesterday. Yeah, now IALPA's Evan Cullen, IALPA being the Airline Pilots Association, last week giving evidence to the same committee, he actually he put out a very stark warning about Aer Lingus and said that if things keep going on the way they are, the airline could go bust. Did Sean Doyle address that or was he asked to address it? Sean Doyle was asked to address address that specific issue by by two of the members, one of them being Roisin Shorthall. Um, what, what Sean Doyle said is that... Um, you know, we are continuing to communicate. He danced around the issue to a certain extent. He said, we're continuing to communicate with workers and they'll be the first to hear anything new. I guess that's fair enough. He also said that the airline was working very, very hard to uh, come through all of this and said that if um, the uh, recommendations of the government's own aviation task force um, were implemented... Aer Lingus' own efforts alongside uh, that should ensure that the airline has a future when all this is hopefully over. Uh, Now, those recommendations included uh, some aid for airlines and some incentives for airports. And they also, more importantly, I think, included uh, um, a call to lift the existing travel restrictions uh, in and out of the Republic. And I think in the context of Aer Lingus particularly, that is very important. Yeah, sure. Now, you mentioned travel restrictions, and I know the green list is something that's high in the agenda of Ryanair. In their opening statement, um, they made clear that the travel restrictions, from their point of view, um, they don't see any legal basis for them, and they think they're a bit of a nonsense, and they've asked for uh, them to be relaxed and for other EU member states, and indeed the UK, um, to be allowed for people to be allowed to fly in and out of here without having to quarantine, for example. The green list, of course, 15 countries on it initially, and a bit of a farce really, wasn't it, Barry? Um, Greenland is included in it, San Marino, Monaco, places like that where there are no direct flights um, to and from Ireland. Um, so what happened uh, at the committee during the week? How did, that, how did that unfold? Well, Ryanair's basic call is for the EU27 uh, and the UK to be included on the green list. Their argument is very simple. You're excluding countries that have lower COVID infection rates and the Republic, um, and there is no basis for it. Interestingly, they highlighted the point that there is no actual legal basis for it. This isn't, a st- this isn't based on a statute. It's simply a list compiled by the government and put there. There has been no legal, no democratic, or any kind of scrutiny of this. 
Um, the government isn't really giving any rationale for saying it's okay to fly to Greenland, um, but not, say, to Germany. Um, but one of the, the interesting things to have emerged is that um, there is a surge in demand for flights to Greece, which is included on the green list. I rather think that tells you that Irish people want to fly and that flying isn't necessarily the issue, but that um, the, the restrictions imposing them when they come back uh, are pro- possibly what is deterring them from flying. So I think that there is a little bit of substance in what both airlines are saying in relation to this green list, because I think that, that Aer Lingus more or less concurs with the Ryanair position in that it doesn't make any sense. Um, most of the countries uh, that are excluded, in uh, most of the EU countries that are excluded at least, um, are safe, are relatively safe in the context of the pandemic to travel to. And air travel itself, well, the risks around air travel itself can, be, can actually be mitigated as well. Ryanair is going to take a legal challenge to this, and I think it would be interesting to see how that plays out, because in a sense, the government has made an arbitrary decision. It's not made itself answerable to the Oireachtas or to anyone else, uh, as it should be doing when it makes decisions of this nature. And Ryanair is clearly uh, basing its legal challenge on that, and it'll be very, very interesting to see how that plays out. Time is of the essence here, obviously. So when is that challenge going to be heard? I don't know. I haven't seen any uh, reference to it on the court lists, but I would assume that the, the first stage is that you would go in fairly quickly and get some kind of a mandatory attempt to get some kind of mandatory order against the government. I'm not entirely sure how the, the, the legal process or legal strategies will play out. Barry, do we have any sense of how many uh, Irish people are, are actually going abroad for a holiday at the minute? You know, you mentioned some figures there. I think it was between 15,000 and 20,000 people a day going through um, uh, the airports. But do we know how many of these are actually going on holidays? Uh, how many are for business trips or maybe for other purposes? We don't. Um, I, I would assume that there, that, that, that there is a mix. I, I would have thought that it, it does strike me that a lot of Irish people are, are, are more or less going along however grudgingly, with the notion of essential travel only. So it's likely that there is a high proportion of, of business or essential travel, although no one knows what that is, um, it, in those numbers. Uh, but I would say also that there are holidaymakers, and clearly the fact that Ryanair um, added extra flights to Greece, uh, from is, or rather is adding extra flights to Greece from next month, would tell you that there is demand for foreign holidays still. And I think if you look outside and you look at the grey skies, if you took a walk around this morning and noticed the chill in the wind, even though it's July, I think a lot of Irish people do want to get away. Yeah, sure. You can't blame them, I guess. Now, let's uh, go back to the airports. Uh, obviously, a pretty grim picture for the two airports, CA, which operates Dublin and Cork. And Shannon Airport, which got its independence there from Dublin uh, a few years ago. And that's um, come up in conversation with this committee previously uh, by SIPTU. SIPTU saying that um, the independence of Shannon Airport has failed and it should be remerged with DAA. Now, Mary Constantine, who runs Shannon Airport, was at the committee this week. You were listening to her. Um, did she answer that question? Yes, she did. And she said, uh, au contraire, that independence has been a success. They have grown passenger numbers. Uh, I think a formal statement they issued following the, the SIP2 statement last week indicated that they'd grown passenger numbers by 23% since 2013. Um, she also said that they had doubled the number of aviation companies operating in, in the Shannon area and that uh, they had attracted new investment to uh, the Shannon Group's properties, which are mostly, but not 100%, 
focused on uh, the area in and around Shannon Airport. So, no, she does not believe that um, independence has failed. At the same time, she pointed out that Shannon Group is a state company and would implement, it would implement state policy. Uh, so she actually didn't say, no, you can't do it. But she simply said, no, independence has worked and we don't see a need to reverse that strategy. And a warning from DAA that some uh, crucial infrastructure that had been planned for the airport might have to be put on the long finger because of financial constraints. Yeah, well, DAA had been planning to spend around two billion extending piers and stands um, to cater for, I mean, I think 40 million passengers by the end of the, the, the decade. That now, well, that has obviously been been long fingered. The DAA has is is relying on borrowings for day to day costs. It's relying on the government to partially pay wages, and um, so it, it certainly can't embark on big projects like that right now. However, their argument is when you look to the future, um, this capacity is ultimately going to be needed. And it shouldn't be long-fingered, or if it's going to be long-fingered, it should not be long-fingered for too long. And for instance, uh, the the new Northern Runway, DA work is still continuing on that, um, despite everything. So that's, that, that's I think, a 250, 270 million project. And the, uh, DAA is continuing with work on that, which began last year. And they're saying that that, 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 that is, is likely to be needed relatively quickly as well. Okay, but interestingly, they're looking for some state aid for Cork Airport, aren't they? Now, Cork at the minute is financed out of the funds generated uh, by DAA, but DAA is saying that the time now has come perhaps for the state to allow Cork to tap some funding uh, from the regional airports programme. Yeah, that that is correct. Uh, None of the state airports qualify for for the the regional airports programme, which is funded by the taxpayer and um, from which the government recently gave two and a half million uh, to to Donegal, Kerry and Knock. Um, DA's argument is that Cork's revenues, which were very healthy, um, have been wiped out by COVID-19 and the travel restrictions. And but that Cork Airport remains of crucial importance to the region, which has a lot of, which is a strong multinational uh, presence, and that um, it needs, it should now qualify for aid from the regional airports program uh, to to help keep it going. Now that regional airports program that provides funding for um, facilities and for uh, safety and security. But it does not or it's not meant to uh, give airports cash to fund their day to day costs. So, I I mean, I'm not quite sure how Cork Airport would spend that money, but um, it's clear that DAA is concerned about Cork. And not only that, Shannon Group has also lobbied to be included in the the regional airports programme itself. And this was even before COVID-19 struck. Yeah, I think Shannon has been uh, arguing that it's at a disadvantage to some of the other uh, regional air- airports, I guess, Knock in particular, um, probably as a result of them being able to tap some government finance. Um, Barry, do we have any sense of when things might get back to normal uh, for the airlines? Did they give any predictions as to when they expect their schedules might be flying normally again? Okay, there are a few things here. Airlines initially, when all, when all this began, airlines initially were saying, well, we're not going to get back to 2019 levels until uh, 2021 at least. DAA, interestingly enough, was a little bit more circumspect and they felt that they would get back to around two thirds of, of what they were doing at some point next year. 
DAA's position is that it would be 23-24 before we actually get back to normal. Normal being what happened in 2019, if you like. Um, It now appears that the airlines are going along with that prediction that really it's going to take three, four years for this to right itself. And that assumes some, I mean... That, that assumes a whole lot of other things happening in the background as well. I, I presume a vaccine or, 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 or some other sort of breakthrough on that front um, or uh, some definitive way of, of, of managing the risks around all of this. Right, okay. And for yourself, Barry, would you be happy to get on a plane and head somewhere to the sun for a holiday? Took a walk this morning, Kieran, and first opportunity, I'm getting on a plane and heading for the sun. Right. OK, well, maybe you can report back to us on your travels uh, once you undertake them. I'll send you a postcard. All right, Barry Halloran, thank you for joining us. Thank you. At Davy, we know uncharted territory can be a challenge. We've been in business since 1926. And since then, we've advised many different clients through many global and national crises. Some will seek comfort in the safe and familiar, while others will embrace the opportunity to try something new. Throughout the years, we've not only listened to our clients, we've got to know you personally, helping us advise you on a financial life plan that suits you best. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Now, imagine you've decided to double the size of your business to meet demand. You secure the unit next door and spend a lot of money fitting it out for customers. Then just as you're about to open, the COVID-19 lockdown is imposed and you're forced to keep your store shut. That's exactly what happened to businesswoman Anne Chapman, the owner of Stone Chat Jewellers in Westbury Mall in Dublin. And I'm delighted to say that Anne is on the line to tell us everything about her experience. She's managed to weather the storm, thankfully. Um, maybe, Anne, you could just tee us up with a little bit, a little potted history, if you like, a Stone Chat and then we'll talk about the lockdown. So I run Stone Chat Jewellers, which is a jeweller specialising in contemporary design that has been handmade by both Irish and European designers. Um, we're based in the Westbury Mall and we've been open for eight years this summer. So we decided late last year to expand into the unit next door to us. So luckily it was free and we needed to increase our floor space, particularly our workshop. So we took over the lease of next door and we knocked down the wall between the two units um, and we're now 100 square metres in the Westbury Mall in Dublin too. Right, OK, and presumably that cost you uh, that cost you a lot of money. Yeah, it definitely wasn't cheap. Um, we had to refit the existing store as part of the project as well because obviously you can't have half your space brand new and half your space uh, looking a little bit tired. So... Um, it was a big job. Now, thankfully, we managed to trade the whole way through it, which was great. Um, we What we basically did was we, we worked out of one unit and we built a temporary wall, knocked the wall behind it, fitted out the whole unit and then moved in there and did the same to the first unit. So it was great to be able to trade through the whole project, which would be quite unusual, you know. Yeah, sure. OK, now you just had the whole thing fitted out, ready to rock, as it were, ready to unveil to your customers and then bang, the COVID-19 lockdown uh, comes along. Tell us about that. Yeah, so you couldn't make it up in terms of timing. Um, the builders left at five o'clock. Um, we finished the job at three days ahead of schedule, which is pretty much unheard of uh, in any build projects I've ever done before. That has never happened. So delighted with myself, went home on the Friday evening. Now, look, COVID was already here and the shop was closed at that stage. So we knew that things weren't great. But nevertheless, 
we were still operating out of the space. We were still manufacturing here and we were doing click and collect and online orders and what have you. And we finished that evening. The builders left, went home, had a drink, sent a little message to the team saying, well done. We all got here. That's great. And then half an hour later, my husband said, oh, there's an announcement on the TV. It's Leo. And sure enough, lockdown happened. So, um, yeah, timing's everything, I suppose. So how did you respond? I mean, the business, uh, presumably under threat, you had to stop everything. You couldn't even do the, the manufacturing, I, I presume, at, at that stage because it was it was total lockdown. So how did you how did you pivot? Well, what we actually did was we did manage to keep up uh, manufacturing. So um, we had, there was, you know, 36 hours where you were allowed to sort out your affairs. So we came straight into the shop the next morning, uh, filled up cars with all of the tools and we set up workshops in uh, one of our goldsmiths in her house. And then another goldsmith already had her own uh, workshop studio. So um, she was able to work from there. We just sent the raw materials home. So we managed to keep two goldsmiths working full time um, and then the rest of the team, we kept working at home uh, doing remote consultations, which actually worked really well. Um, I ran the online shop out of my house, which was not ideal, but <laughs> you have to do what you can do. Um, and so we kept going. All of us, team of seven, kept working the whole way through. So what was the impact on sales? We were 35% down um, from April until middle of June. But now a lot of that would have been there were still orders that were placed in March would have been collect, not collected, but shipped out um, during, say, May and the first half of June. So a lot of that would have been orders that were placed before um, the lockdown. So when we opened back up, even though we were only 35% down, our orders were almost at nil because everything that had been ordered at that stage had been made and shipped out. So we, I would always look at both uh, sides of things to get a real feeling for how the business is doing. Right. OK, so a very worrying time. Now, you mentioned um, the shift to online. You were managing the, the online shop and I think you had and you still have some click and collect services in place. Just tell us a little bit about that pivot towards online and consumer demand, how consumers responded to you going online. Yeah, so it worked really well, actually. Um, online, would we would have always done it. It was always part of our business, but it was never a huge part. Uh, I suppose with jewellery, the nature of it is that it's a touch and feel product that people want to try it on. Um, now, we worked really hard on the website during lockdown to just create that experience as much as you can online that you would get in the shop to let people know that we were um, there at the other end of the phone. You know, we set up a WhatsApp service um, we did remote consultations. So just to let people know that it wasn't just a robot, you know, that there was actually a human voice there that you could talk to. Actually, a lot of people called and placed orders over the phone, which is interesting. You know, they knew that they wanted the piece and they knew that it was next day delivery and they knew all of those things, the messages that we tried to get across on the website. But just to actually place the order, it was important for them to speak to somebody. Sure, right. OK, so when did you reopen and what was the response again from customers? So we reopened on the 15th of June um, and we've had a really, really strong start, which is great. Um we ask customers to make appointments for consultations. So we would be really known for our remodeling old jewelry service. So what we do is we melt down old gold and we reset people's gemstones and make a new piece from what they already have. It's a big part of what we do. 
And it would be very time intensive, I suppose. The customer would generally be with us for 45 minutes to an hour. So we put, normally it would have been a walk-in, you know, service, but now we've asked people to make appointments. It just means that we can manage the time and manage the staff and distancing and everything that we need to do. And we have all the right um, procedures in place and the screens and everything else. And we had actually a brilliant uptake and have had full appointments, you know, nearly every week. And have we've actually just coming up to the end of July now, we're going to be um, ahead of last July, which is amazing. So, so far, so good and hopeful for the future. And how long do you think uh, you might be able to continue trading in this new normal, um, you know, with some social distancing and other restrictions in place? And, you know, Dublin City Centre is a bit of a ghost town, I guess, at the minute. No tourists and very few office workers knocking about the place at the minute. So for a business like yours, how long can you continue in this environment? Well, I suppose, like on the one hand, we're very lucky in that we're a destination product, definitely, um, and that our customer is uh, an Irish customer generally. Um, So we would have some tourists during the summer, but more often than not, it is a local customer. Um, The difficulty, I suppose, is the risk that, say, coming into Christmas period, that if your team, half your team come down with it, Um, and are out of action for the last two weeks before Christmas, that could be detrimental to the business. Um, We would typically do about 25% of annual turnover in December um, and 15% of annual turnover in the last nine days before Christmas. So if I was out of action for that nine days or my manager was out of action for that nine days, that would be very, very tricky. So that would be my biggest concern um, for the rest of this year anyway. All right. And what's what's your most popular item? We have a collection called the Stepping Stones range. Um, so it's one that I designed two years ago. Um, and it's basically to mark moments in life and people's journey through life. Um, and it's been really popular. It's in association with Aware. So 10% of the sales go to Aware. Um, and basically everybody who buys it, they are marking something very special or very poignant um, and everyone has their own story attached to it. So uh, it does sell very well for us. And I guess Anne, to get through this crisis, you need a bit of help. You need a bit of help from government and presumably from your landlord as well. How's how's the landlord uh, treated you? We're in discussions. Um, (laughs) Our landlord is a hotelier, so I don't think they're in the easiest position right now and probably you know, we would be a smaller part of the business. So um, that conversation will still need to be had, definitely. But at the same time, I do understand that they are also a business and going through a very difficult time. So you just have to have the conversation at the right time, I think. Yeah, sure. That's the Doyle collection, I presume you're you're referencing. And in terms of government support, has the government done enough and to help a small business like yours? Or what, what might the government be able to do for you at this stage? Well, I mean, we're delighted with the wage subsidy. That obviously was an amazing support um, through the last number of months. I think we we will lose that if we carry on as we are now. Um, obviously, the rates, the extension to the, the rates break is also uh, a great thing. So all in all, look, we have done quite well, I think, considering our turnover isn't, you know, down to 10% or something like that um, with the government supports. I'd love to see 
the plans, more detailed plans around the apprenticeships, um, because obviously that for us, where we have a trade, that could be something that would be really interesting to us. Um, but, you know, I think the details need to still be sent out on that. All right. Well, Anne, good to hear that you're still standing, as it were, and that you finally got to open that new unit. And we wish you uh, continued success uh, in the rest of the year. Hopefully they'll find a virus or a medicine or something that might uh, give us all a little bit more confidence to go out and mix again. Um, and we might check in with you maybe uh, later in the year around Christmas time to see how you're getting on. Anne Chapman, thank you for joining us. That sounds great. Thanks. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Barry O'Halloran and Anne Chapman. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe.